Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the bosses of our biggest polluters will have their day in court, whether they like it or not, in a David and Goliath case that the world is watching. Even if Mr Smith doesn't succeed, what he will have achieved is the ability to put these corporates to the test, uh, to put them under the microscope, for them to have to stand in front of a court under oath and tell judges what they're doing what they're not doing, and that will be massive. The Mr Smith in this case is Mike Smith. This is Mike Smith, well-known, a long-time activist. Has won the right to sue seven big emitters for their role in causing climate change. In a 70-page judgement, the Supreme Court has ruled the case can go ahead. The climate activist of Napui and Ngāti Kahu says companies including Fonterra, Z Energy and Genesis Energy have a legal duty to him and others in the community to rein in their greenhouse gases. He's not seeking money, obviously. He's seeking declarations. He wants them to stop their activities. That's right, seven of our biggest companies to stop polluting. Here's how Mike Smith explains it on Northland Radio Tehiku. The storms, the floods, the fires, the droughts, all those things associated with climate change uh, can be traced back to the activities of these companies. And if we're to, um, if we're to stop this uh, crisis rolling out, we've got to stop these companies from discharging their pollution into the atmosphere. And so that's why I've got them in court. I'm asking the court to um, put together some regulations that force them to comply. Uh, and then we can prosecute them if they don't. Some are calling it judicial activism, a costly legal battle that will clog up the courts for months. They say it's Parliament's job to deal with these matters. The seven corporates who oppose Mike Smith's action said exactly that, that you know managing carbon footprints for corporates in New Zealand should be left to Parliament and not the courts. Until the Supreme Court's decision, the general thinking was that you couldn't bring a court claim against another person for their greenhouse gas emissions. And if you did, it would be struck out before getting to trial. The first two claims allege public nuisance and negligence. But the third asks for a new ruling, what's called tort law, and we'll explain that soon. The Supreme Court has taken a different view of this case to the two courts below it, in particular the Court of Appeal, which had unanimously struck out Smith's claims and said essentially the magnitude of the climate change crisis couldn't be appropriately or adequately addressed by a common law court. The Supreme Court overturned that decision and reinstated all of the claims. This is one of the most significant climate change cases that New Zealand has ever experienced. We're all on the edge of our seat. Vernon Rive is an associate law professor at Auckland University and expert in climate change law. He was surprised at the unanimous decision by the Supreme Court's five judges. To me, that sends a strong message that they are united in their view that these issues are really significant. But uh, the reasons were jointly delivered by two judges, Justice Joseph Williams and Justice Stephen Koch. Now, Justice Williams, first Māori on the Supreme Court, former chair of the Waitangi Tribunal, former resource management litigator, Perhaps no surprises that he was involved in the drafting of a decision which involves a strong tikanga element. But his co-author, Justice Koch, 
Uh, he's a former partner of Russell McVeigh, commercial litigator as well as an environmental litigator, a self-described kindly Tory. So I think the fact that Justice Koch and Justice Williams jointly authored this decision sends another message uh, that the court is united in its view that not only is climate change a real issue, it needs to be examined carefully by the courts, but also that tikanga is an important issue and that needs to be considered carefully about what its implications might be for tort law. Okay, now tort law... Can you explain exactly what that is even? Because I think a lot of people don't even know that phrase. There are a lot of climate change cases brought by activists. Most of the cases in New Zealand are what we call public law cases. For example, Greenpeace challenging a resource consent to approve the construction of a coal mine. This is not one of those public law cases. This is a private law case which involves an individual directly suing um, corporate entities uh, for the harm that they have caused to him and will cause in the future. Uh, And so tort law has existed for hundreds of years and and it's an old common law remedy uh, that the courts used to prevent harm uh, caused by people which was not itself kind of regulated by statute. Um, So before statutes and regulations became kind of much more prevalent, which they are now, um, litigants relied on tort law uh, to prevent harm or to seek recompense from harm which had occurred. The tikanga aspect, how, how does that all fit into this case? So in recent years, the Supreme Court and other courts of New Zealand have recognised that this body of customary law and practice, known as tikanga Māori, uh, was not displaced when New Zealand was colonised in the 19th century, that it's the first law of the land, and that there are a number of principles of tikanga, including what might be loosely thought of as uh, obligations of stewardship, of relationships between uh, between people, um, obligations to the environment, ways of addressing harm and restoring balance, and so on, that these ancient customary principles of tikanga are there, and they should inform the way that modern common law is operating. An example of how it might impact this case is that one of the elements of tort law is the requirement for someone who wants to bring a case to show that they have been harmed in a way which is different to the harm that might be experienced by every other person in New Zealand. And so Mr Smith has said that part of the way that uh, he is different to everyone else in New Zealand is because of the ancient uh, relationship that he and his whanau and iwi have with the land that he has a customary interest in up, up north, um, and that is one way in which tikanga might inform the operation and the evolution of tort law in New Zealand. Or in Mike Smith's words... The major thing is that the courts reflect the morality of society at any given point. What I mean by that is that if you cast your mind back, uh, say, 50, 60, 70 years ago, getting uh, Indigenous rights recognised by the courts was they just wouldn't do it, you know. Uh, But over time, the society matures, uh, people get a bit smarter, uh, our concepts of justice evolve, 
and then there comes a time when the courts uh, will entertain these things. So for this particular court case, its time has come. What does Mike Smith actually have to prove here? It's not such a simple question because what he has to prove will in part depend on what the rules for tort law are, which themselves are contested and will have to be determined by the High Court. Mm-hmm. But um, kind of broadly speaking, uh, Mike Smith has argued that it is enough for him to be able to prove that the actions of the seven corporate emitters, Fonterra, Genesis, Z Energy, New Zealand Steel, uh, and so on, have made what he argues uh, should be a material contribution to the emissions which are in the atmosphere, which then cause harm to the land that Mr Smith is associated with. The corporate defendants argue that there should be a much higher test uh, in evidence that uh, Mr Smith needs to do more than just show that they have made some contribution, but that their contribution to emissions has resulted in direct and discernible impacts on his land. The corporate defendants together are associated with about 30% of New Zealand's total emissions. New Zealand as a country contributes less than about 0.2 of 1% of global emissions. Uh, And so the corporate defendants are associated with around 0.06% of global emissions. And the corporate defendants say that this is a minute contribution and that there is no way that it can be shown that their small globally contribution to emissions has any discernible impact on Mr Smith's land, such that even if they stopped emitting completely tomorrow, there would be no difference to the damage that would be experienced by Mr Smith um, and, and his whanau. Uh, and so that is one of the kind of the core questions of this case. I think it's fair to say that the Supreme Court has broken new ground with this decision. Blair Kewen is a lawyer for Belgali, one of the many big law firms involved in this case. Until the Supreme Court's decision, the general thinking was that you couldn't bring a court claim against another person for their greenhouse gas emissions. And if you did, it would be struck out before getting to trial. Instead, with the Supreme Court's decision, uh, we see the court saying, well, at the very least, these sorts of claims should be allowed to proceed through to trial and be properly tested. And that's a departure from what the Court of Appeal had said. And in a sense, it's the Supreme Court opening a door that had previously been pretty firmly closed. So th- so this is a real shake-up, isn't it? I mean, this could open the doors for what many, many cases like this, if, if Mike Smith wins, or even if he doesn't win, the fact that it's got to this point. It was, as I said at the start, the Supreme Court has opened a door that was pretty firmly closed. And some may see you know, opportunities arising out of that. You know, that could involve the bringing of similar claims. It could involve testing the boundaries of other legal principles. But against that, there's also a possibility that some wait to see how the Smith claim develops before deciding 
you know, whether to bring a claim of their own because climate change related cases are, are complex, they're challenging, they're potentially time consuming. And so there's you know, arguably a case for waiting to see how that develops before deciding whether or not to bring an action of one's own. And, and I've seen quite a lot of argument that the courts aren't the place to decide this kind of thing. It should be decided by Parliament. But why? There is a question as to what the right institution is to engage in some of the tricky questions that these claims throw up. And there are a number of quite tricky issues to deal with because at its core, what these sorts of claims uh, involve um, is an issue where everyone emits, e equally everyone suffers um, or feels the effects of climate change. So does that mean that you know, everyone can bring a claim? Does it mean that everyone can have a claim brought against them? Where do you draw the line between who's in and, and who's out? Or what value do we place on particular um, activities, recognising that a number of activities that involve emissions are also things that are important to the economy and to the lives of, of New Zealanders? So there's quite a, a lot of big issues that need to be grappled with. And there is a question as to what the right institution is to deal with that. Is it parliament? Is it government? Is it the, the courts? And this case really throws all of those issues into pretty sharp relief. Why is the international community watching this case? Is there nothing like it overseas? We have seen a lot of international interest in the progression of this case. That interest has come from the UK, it's come from Australia, you know, countries which have very similar legal systems and court systems to our own and are quite clearly watching the decision and the progression of the case with interest. Of course the Supreme Court decision isn't binding in those countries but it is relevant uh, and just judging by the level of interest is something that may very well feature in arguments presented in those courts and courts elsewhere. So there is no case internationally like this? I think it's fair to say that this is probably the first of its kind. Mike Smith says that there is some urgency to this. I mean, how quickly can it proceed, given it's very complex, isn't it? And it involves so many different companies and their, and their representatives. So do you expect it to proceed this year? I think ultimately that's going to be a question for the courts. I mean, what happens now is that the case goes back to the High Court for case management and it will be sort of for the court to you know, progress matters further from here. In terms of the implications for private companies, Genesis Energy, for example, uses coal to, to get power. Um, would this case mean that it has to drastically cut back that program? I wouldn't be able to comment on the specific implications for any of the, uh, any of the defendants. Uh, I suppose what I can say um, is that the question of what does this mean is a question that will be addressed at trial. As you said, the orders that are being sought in the case 
include you know, a couple of injunctions. One of those injunctions calls for any, an immediate stop to net emissions. The other, as I think you touched on, talks about a peaking of emissions at net emissions at 2025 and then a gradual reduction to net zero by, by 2050. And the court is going to have to kind of grapple with those you know, orders and questions around whether it is something that they can realistically um, impose and supervise. Mike Smith himself has said, you know, he, he's not after money. It's not about the money. If he wins, he's asking for stuff that, is, that needs to happen straight away. Say, for example, Genesis Energy, which uses coal-fired power. Presumably it just has to almost stop immediately. Well, it could do it in different ways, and it depends on whether it's, it would be an order requiring an absolute reduction or cessation of emissions or, and this is one of the alternative forms of relief, whether it's a net emissions reduction. Now net emissions would allow Genesis uh, as part of an overall response to this perhaps to reduce emissions to some respect but also to arrange offsets which might for example involve tree planting or the purchase of international emissions uh, units internationally or, or some other form uh, which was acceptable to the court and robust, and that shows that um, it's reduced its kind of overall emissions. If, as you say, it does go back to the Supreme Court because it's appealed, and the Supreme Court has made this unanimous decision, does that have any bearing on what its decision could be when it goes back yeah, on appeal? Great question. The court in its decision has been quite careful to say that um, the reasons that it is, it is giving are brief because it expects that it will come back to it. So I wouldn't say that uh, apart from you know, the, the clear decision allowing this case to go to trial uh, that the Supreme Court will still be open uh, to reaching different views uh, on this. And it may be that the Supreme Court ultimately doesn't uphold this case uh, for Mr Smith. Where does the government fit in all of this? I mean, you know, th there's already regulations and laws around climate change emissions and what these big companies have to do. It was one of the key planks of the corporate defendants that there is a statutory regime in the Climate Change Response Act. We have an emissions trading scheme. They say the government's got this uh, and that the courts should step aside and let the government and parliament do what they do. But the Supreme Court said, and they're right, parliament has not statutorily displaced tort law in relation to climate change. Not yet, anyway. And so the court said, uh, we're gonna do what we do, which is hear claims and make a, a decision on whether relief should be granted. I fully expect that if Mr Smith was successful, that Parliament would step in at that point. What, what do you mean by that, that Parliament might step in? Let's say, for example, that the court declares that the corporates owe a duty not to uh, contribute to climate harm and impose an injunction requiring a stepping down. My expectation is that Parliament would say, let's have an appropriate statutory response uh, to that. And one would hope, Mr Smith certainly would hope, that that would be a lot stronger 
than the response which exists at the moment. It seems like every big law firm in town is involved with this. I'm, I'm sure that every big law firm is advising clients on this because, as I said before, it's not just the seven named defendants and many of the big law firms in town are involved in that, but it's all of the other large emitters who might be impacted by what I've called the snowball effect if Mr Smith was successful. So there will be a lot of boards and directors kind of looking carefully and talking to their lawyers a little nervously to say where is this all heading and, uh, and what might be the result and what should we be doing. So Mike Smith has said that he thinks because of that urgency to it that it will, the trial will take start this year. Right, and I, I simply don't know that. It's nothing less than an existential crisis from Mr Smith's uh, perspective uh, and so this needs to be dealt with urgently. So there will be a pretty detailed and onerous process of discovery and this gives me a chance I guess to talk about another aspect of the strategy which is that even if Mr Smith doesn't succeed, having won the right to have this brought to trial, he now has uh, the entitlement to ask the corporates for discovery, to produce documents which show what they're doing or not doing in relation to climate change, for them to produce evidence, perhaps to put their chief executives or their CFOs on the stand, it will be the subject of cross-examination by uh, smart and effective lawyers. And so there will be a, a kind of appealing away, I guess, of positions on really contentious climate change issues which are going to be the subject of evidence and cross-examination before the court. And even if Mr Smith doesn't succeed in getting his relief, what he will have, have achieved in part is the ability to put these corporates to the test, uh, to put them under the microscope, for them to have to stand in front of a court under oath and tell judges what they're doing, what they're not doing, why they're not doing, what might be the implications of all of that, uh, as well as competing experts on all of the scientific matters uh, that I've talked about. And that in itself, this kind of exposure of the corporates to the type of judicial and legal scrutiny um, will be massive. And that's another reason I think why a lot of people are really interested in this. That's it for today. The detail is supported by RNZ and NZ On Air. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and thanks to Vernon Rive and Blair Kewen. Mā te wā.